Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. This beautiful Sunday morning. Extra beautiful. Because it's not 103 degrees outside. You would go ahead from the foyer. Let's stand and worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise Him that we get to come together as a church body and worship Him together as one.
The only king forever. We just said that we put our trust in him. Our trust, our hopes, our needs, our fears, our worship in him, our king. Well, you may be seated. Good to see you guys. Glad you're here. Was it not fun to see that we have more wardrobe than just summer wardrobe? Now we can actually look and we've got like pants and, you know, sweaters and long sleeves. Don't worry, it'll be like 90 again in two days. But enjoy these two days while you can. So if you are a guest, that was your weather report. We are glad to have you, though. And we want to we want to do more than just you know, deliver weather. We want to meet you. We want to know your name. And so in the bulletin, there's a perforated tab that if you fill that out, and after the sermon, today after the service, if you would turn it in at the welcome desk, uh, we would like to give you a gift, make sure that you know what's going on at Fellowship. You get a personal note from Pastor Grant Call. And if you're online, you can connect online as well, because we, that's what we want to do. We want to connect. We want to get to know you. So men, this next announcement is for you. We are having our next monthly men's breakfast in two weeks. As always, it's Saturday at 8 o'clock down the North Foyer. That is a great time for food. Definitely manly fellowship where we get together and we talk about manly topics and what does the word have to say with that? What does it have to do with our lives? And so that is a great opportunity, guys, for us to get together for our monthly men's breakfast. But more than that, I want to make sure you know, guys, to mark this on your calendar that put the save the date out there for an upcoming men's conference. We are having a men's conference in January. It's going to be here at Fellowship. It's on a Friday night and then a Saturday morning. And that is going to be a great time. As you see, it's called Fight the Good Fight. And so what are we after with this conference? This is for men who are pursuing after God in their homes, in their church, in their workplace, in the community. Just like the pictures show, many of us are involved in all of those areas. And we want to pursue God. We want to represent him in, in, the, in that manner. And if you're thinking, you know, why fight the good fight? That sounds familiar. Well, we're in 2 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, in Paul's first letter to Timothy, he says this. He says, you man of God, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. And so we always need to, or often need to gather together just as guys to have these conversations. And so make sure you mark that on your calendar. Registration will begin in November. That is going to be a good conference, guys. Well, I'm excited to also announce just our next steps in our five-year ministry plan. If you were here January 8th, where we had our big celebration of all that God has done at Fellowship over the past 45 years, and where are we now, and where are we going in the, you know, in the next five-year ministry plan? Well, we're releasing a vision guide that just talks about that. We put our, those ministry goals out there and then drill down in what we think it's going to look like in six key areas over the next five years. And so there's a vision guide that highlights that. It's also available online. But it looks at like, what kind of, if here's where our ministry is going to go in five years, Lord willing, then what kind of staff does it take to accomplish that? What kind of facilities? Like, there's a lot of interest about building. What does a campus plan or facilities look like? Where do we think we want to go with missions and outreach? And so there's several key areas with annual kind of guideposts that are put in that vision guide. So we would welcome for you to take that or download it from online. Not just so you know, you do need to know and be aware, but so you can get involved, so we can all do this together because we are marching forward together. 
We also want to make sure everybody's aware, we announced this last week, we want to put it before you again this week, that the elder board has been engaging with Mike Strauss for the past three or four months just to, to see what it would look like to partner with him and have Mike join our elder board. And so consistent with our constitution and bylaws, we would like to put that before you as a congregation just to affirm that. Uh, next Sunday would be our, our date to affirm Mike. And it, Mike and his wife Kay have been part of fellowship for quite a while. If you're not sure or if you haven't run across him, he has he is on the uh, Forerunners leadership team. He has taught several classes at our men's ministry. He right now is a co-leader for our life-giving discipleship group. So Mike has been very instrumental. Kay serves as well. And we would love to see him join our elder board. If you have any comments about that, any questions or any concerns, seek out any of the elders. Let us know because we want to engage in that conversation. And then the goal would be to, to prayerfully affirm him next Sunday. Well, just talking about that emphasis on leadership, leadership is important, and we want to make sure everybody knows that today is Pastor Appreciation Day, and so those are our three pastors that God has called to fellowship, Grant and Ryan and George, and they're all serving today, but we just mentioned this so you would know that when you see them, just say, thank you, thank you for being a man of God who stands on God's word, who shepherds and loves the sheep, and who ultimately works tirelessly really for God's purpose, and so there's a... We all know that there's a lot of churches where you would not be able to say what I just said about their pastoral team. We can hear, and I am extremely thankful for the men that God has called to fellowship. And so I would just say thank you to our pastors. And so as you see them today or throughout the week, drop them a note. Let them know, hey, you are not unnoticed. I appreciate you, and God is using you in my life. And so just... It's, it's kind of good timing that we happen to be in this book, as Second Timothy, where Paul is encouraging Timothy on what kind of a pastor he's to be. How is he to lead his flock? And one of the things he says is that, you know what? You are not given a spirit of timidity, but a power and love and self-discipline. And that might involve suffering. And that might involve death. And that's not just for pastors. We're all actually called to, if necessary, die for our faith. But here's what Paul says about that when he writes to the church in Corinth. He, th he says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we are here this morning. He alone is worthy to worship. We invite you to stand and do just that. Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin. Lost without hope with no place to be. Grace is 
something as simple as just reading the news. It's reassuring to know that God is faithful. He goes before us and he hems us in from behind. 
The God of angel armies is not distant. He's right by our side.
God, he is always by our side. And as this next song says, he is the God of the mountaintops. He's the God of the valleys. There's no place that his mercy and grace will not find us again. So no matter where you are this morning, no matter where you've been, God is right there. Search the world, but it couldn't fill me. Man's empty praise, treasures and fame, but never enough. And you came along and you put me back together. Is now satisfied hearing your love, your amazing love. Oh, there's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you, Lord. There's nothing, nothing is better than you.
to save sinners, liars, thieves, hypocrites, prideful and lustful people like us. And the Pharisees and the Roman rulers weren't happy about that, and they thought a crucifixion would end their problem. But you know, they didn't take Jesus' life. He gave his life for us. And that, that, that cross that they thought was a defeat, that cross is our victory in, in Christ. It's wrong. 
sin takes away our sin. The Holy Lamb, the Holy Lamb of God makes us alive again. Makes us alive again. we might be facing, the God of heavenly armies, his presence, Jesus, right here with us. We're never alone. We worship from the heart. So let's just pray as we're standing before the awesome living God. Lord, what a joy it is to gather with your people this morning, to think of it and to know the reality that you've redeemed our life from the pit. You love us. You're for us. You've called us to yourselves, that we would be a people of praise, that we'd worship you from the heart. We would know the goodness of Jesus in this life, and we would be involved in your kingdom work. And so we're asking God now that as we open up your word, the word you've given us by your Holy Spirit, that your same spirit would right now be taking your truths and weaving them deep into our hearts, that we would reflect your goodness and know your love and live in your security. We pray this and ask in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated, and if you want to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, as we are systematically making our way through this book. And while you're doing that, I'm sure you've heard of the phrase, a mile wide and an inch deep. Heard of it? Yes? Do you know its origins, though? It actually comes from 1889. There was a journalist and American humorist by the name of Edgar Nye, And when he went and observed the Platte River, which is a major tributary on the Missouri watershed, it's exactly what he found at places, and here's a picture of it. It is a mile wide, but it's only an inch deep. It is disqualified for use of um, shipping goods because, frankly, it's just a muddy mess, and you can't move ships there. It just lacks depth. And so that phrase, an inch deep, but a mile wide. It kind of caught on, and pretty soon they started referring to politicians that way. That didn't go over so well. And then, of course, like in academics. But I want you to know that God doesn't want his people an inch deep and a mile wide. God values and wants us to grow deep. He doesn't want us to stay immature or as an infant. He's called us to himself, 
We are truly born again, but he desires that we would grow deep in our relationship with him and to know him in a very meaningful and personable way. And, and why is that, though? I mean, why does God desire depth among his people? I'm going to give you three reasons, ways that perhaps we can all just remember. First of all, it's our delight. You see, spiritual depth, why that equates to a greater joy of knowing God. It leads to worshiping him from the heart. And so as the more that we know about God, guess what? It's expressed in our lives in worship, like we just got done singing songs of exaltation to the living God. Where does that come from? It comes from a heart of depth, of knowing who he is. It also, God desires depth in our lives for our development. You see, a greater understanding of God and his ways, it leads to a greater love for him. So much so that our devotion will even be marked by sacrifice and even suffering if it's called for. Because God is developing truth in us that we really know him. And from this relationship of depth comes a lifestyle that reflects that. And then there's a third reason why God desires spiritual depth in his people in a, in a meaningful relationship, and that is our declaration. We can speak intelligently about who God is, his word, his works, his ways. We can do so with fellow believers, edification, teaching, growing, learning, encouraging one another. But we can also even give a defense to those who are asking for the hope that lies within, rationally, from knowledge, from truth. You see, God desires depth in our lives. Then the big question is, okay, if that's what God desires, so that we're not just an inch deep and a mile wide, how does God develop depth, spiritual depth, in the lives of his people? That is the question we all must be able to answer. And that is why I'm so glad you are here this morning because that's the text we're going to find. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. If you want to move past being an inch deep Christian, you are no longer willing to settle for the superficial. There's a yearning for Christ's joy, righteousness, holiness, a depth of relationship and intimacy with God. This is your text. Three realities that develop depth in life-giving disciples. First thing that you and I are to treasure in order to be transformed is the person of Christ. Take a look, chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. The very first treasure of our lives, foremost, is the person of Christ. Notice what he says. He says, remember Jesus Christ. The idea in the, with the Greek present tense is to keep on remembering. This is an ongoing lifestyle. It is to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Not just once in a while, but as a regular pattern of our lives. And why? Because he's risen from the dead. Let that sink in. That changes everything. You see, our faith is in a risen Savior, He's conquered death. He has established eternal life for all who will believe in him. He is alive. He is all-powerful. He is the eternal son of God who entered into humanity, lived a perfect life, became the perfect sacrifice, died on our behalf, and rose again. We have a certain hope. We have a certain eternity. Why? Because he's 
risen from the dead. And notice what else we see. He is a descendant of David, according to my good news, according to the good news. You see, Jesus promised throughout the Old Testament scriptures of an eternal king who would be in the line of David. Jesus is the legal heir. He is the king that will reign forever. He is the descendant of David, according to my gospel. You see, verse 8, this is the rally cry of the redeemed. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. The good news. You see, the good news about Christ When we believe him and believe the truth, he saves us. He secures us. In fact, he seals us with the Holy Spirit of promise. And God, who now lives within us who believe, he's our source of strength. Just like we saw in chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul is writing, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. God's strength, unmerited favor, the riches of relationship with Christ always, always available. We just need to keep focusing upon him, asking and receiving. But here's the problem. Uh, We oftentimes fail to remember. In fact, we are easily distracted. And I want you to know that this is common for all of us. You see, we have even fallen bodies and fallen minds. We never really can fully pay attention like even now, there's some of you that are just kind of lost in space, okay? Now you're, you, I've got you back, right? But even like sometimes when we're praying, we, it was like all of a sudden our mind wanders, even reading the Bible, we're hearing a sermon, we're singing worship songs. I want you to know that that is, that is a common human malady. It exists with all of us. We all face it. So what we need to do is learn how to remember, to know firsthand the presence of Jesus. That requires then that we regularly develop patterns and prompts to cause us to remember Jesus Christ. Let me give you a a really good one. When you begin your day, as soon as you remember you're a follower of Jesus, that could be within the first 30 seconds. Some of you, maybe the first 30 minutes or three hours, I don't know, right? But as soon as you like remember and you're like, do this. Tell God, you know, good morning, God. Lord, and thank him. I was talking with one of our older saints, and she's, she's got about three reasons why uh, she could die at any time. And she says, I've developed this pattern of thanking God first thing in the morning. You know what that is? Well, that's remembering Jesus Christ. He's our source of strength. He's our life. No matter what we face, we don't do it alone. He's got us. He loves us. We're with him. But let it continue. Like, maybe you've got a verse of the day. Or maybe there's a passage of scripture. Begin, find time to regularly renew yourself with the presence of Jesus. Enjoy God. Enjoy just reading your Bible. Um, You want to listen to God-glorifying music. I mean, there's all sorts of different music, but but make sure that if you're going to be listening to music at times, listen to music that puts your focus back on God, reminds you of who he is and that he's with you. Have focused friends. Be involved in a life group. Uh, What you also want to do is at times just enjoy God as you're out in creation because all of this is causing us to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. You want to become spiritually deep. 
You want to know God intimately? Do this. Focus on the person of Christ. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. But second, do this. Treasure the power of God's word. So he says, verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, verse 9, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. Do you see what Paul is doing? He's saying, listen, I am willing to suffer, to endure hardship, because the power of the gospel to transform lives is revealed in the word of God. And how great of suffering he's enduring, he's saying, to even be maligned as a criminal. So what's the charge against Paul? Uh, The charge is he won't abandon his faith in Christ. He says there is only one Lord, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's not going to stop talking about him or serving him or acknowledging him. And that's going to be a problem in a, in a Roman empire where you've got a maniac who's disturbed by the guy by the name of Nero, who all of a sudden is going to turn up the heat. And he's going to come up with about 100 different ways you can die for your faith as a Christian. And Paul says, you know what? The power of the gospel, the greatness of Jesus, the power of his word, I'm willing to suffer hardship. Whatever hardship comes my way as a follower of Jesus involved in his kingdom. And I want you to know that if you're involved in ministry to others and you see your life as a ministry, I want you to know ministry is hard work. There's oftentimes a lot of discouragement. There are people that let you down. There's always limited resources. There's challenges. There are problems. There are people that perhaps are going to just even abandon you. And of course, you're expecting that, you know, those that don't yet believe in Christ, why some of them are going to be kind of hostile to a gospel message that calls for repentance and that there's only one way of salvation. But I want you to know that you can even find hostilities from those who even self-identify as Christians. It'll shred you. And you'll find false teachers referenced in every chapter in 2 Timothy breaking people away from the one true faith, causing all sorts of disturbances. And Paul says, you know what? All of these are hardships, but I will be willing to suffer those kind of hardships. Why? Because the word of God cannot be imprisoned. Think of it. Paul's chained. He says, Timothy, what you need to know is that God's word can never be imprisoned. And what this is doing in Timothy, who is facing challenges, significant ones as a pastor, we find fear, like chapter 1, verse 7, why this is kindling a vital faith. This is taking Timothy deep in his relationship with God, and he's reminding him that God's word can never be chained. Why? Because it is the word of the living God. You see, Scripture is the inerrant meaning without error, infallible, completely trustworthy revelation of God. It is given to us by his Holy Spirit. It is infused with his power. His word is alive, and God's word will always accomplish the work for which it's intended. There is, in a convent in Erfurt, Germany, there is a a picture of a young Martin Luther. Early in the morning, with the lattices open, the sun streaming in, he's writing and his Bible is open, And he's eagerly focused on the text. And in that particular picture, there is a chain that is broken from on that Bible. And it's all to symbolize this, that our authority rests 
in Scripture, not in a pope, not in a denomination, not in a church. Ultimate authority resides where? With God and his word. And this word that God has given us, it's from him. It can't be imprisoned. You persecute Christians, you burn the Bibles, you ban them. Guess what? God's word is going to continue to move forth. And that is because God uses his word to develop depth in his people. It is the word of God that reveals the glories of the gospel, the fullness of it, and it can never be chained. And so you want to make it a pattern where you're in the Bible, you're reading it, you're listening and engaging in solid sermons that are teaching you the truth of the word because it's the expression of truth. It explains reality. It's God's word that encourages our heart. So let me give you just a simple prayer that you can use like before you study the Bible. Try this. This week, every time you're going to pick up the word to read, Psalm 119, verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. God, would you do this? Would you Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your word, truth for life, encouragement, strength. You see, God has given us his word that cannot be chained. And like Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. You want to be spiritually deep? You want to know God intimately in profound ways? To know him as friend, to experience what it means to be unconditionally loved, to have the hope of eternity, Now, residing in your life, why you want to treasure the person of Christ and the power of God's word. But then there's a third. And do you see just Paul? He's taking Timothy deeper. He's developing depth in his life, fortitude for his soul. You want to have depth as a life-giving disciple? Then you want to treasure the reality of the precepts of our faith. And so Paul makes this statement. Precepts is the instruction that is given. And here he's giving some further instruction. He's going to tell us something in verse 10 that we would never know apart from God's revelation. We couldn't know. But take a look, verse 10. He says, Timothy, for this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. So here's the Apostle Paul, and he's saying, I want you to know that I am willing to endure all things for what reason? For the sake of those who are chosen, or maybe your Bible translated, those are who are elect. See, what Paul is saying here is the reason I'm willing to deal with difficulty, all sorts of hardship, challenge, even be imprisoned like a criminal is because I want people to truly know who Christ is. And this glorious salvation, it always begins with God. Salvation is all of grace. Who does the choosing? God does. For the sake of those who are chosen, 
so that they'll obtain salvation. So they are chosen, but yet they haven't received salvation. So that tells us the only way that you and I could ever experience salvation for our sins is that when we place our faith, we are trusting in Jesus. We know who he is. And it's, so God does the choosing, but we must believe the gospel. God's sovereignty, human responsibility. Right there, one verse. And Paul says, I am eager and I will be willing to suffer whatever comes my way because I want people to know the glorious salvation that is found in Christ Jesus. And notice this, and with it, eternal glory that they will know forever just how good it is to know Jesus, the riches of relationship, what forgiveness of sins really looks like to be emancipated from guilt, to experience joy, peace, love, unconditional love, only found in Christ. And this isn't the first time that Paul has referenced this. Remember in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he said this, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, and then watch this, which was granted us in Christ Jesus when? What does it say? From all eternity. You see, it, it is God who is the one who has granted us this salvation from all eternity. And I want you to know that personally, I am so very grateful for men and women who really believe this text. You see, when we come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, he is breaking us from the self-centeredness that's so deeply rooted within us, this prideful perspective of life. And he's bringing us to a place of God-centeredness, where we begin to see life and people from God's perspective. It's God who is the one who does this. And what happens is, you start, st- stop seeing life as like, hey, what's in it for me? To God, how could you use me to accomplish your work? So, you know, I've had the opportunity of sharing my st- story of how God brought me to a saving knowledge of himself and a relationship with him. I've done it hundreds of times, one-on-one. A lot of times in some very small group settings. In some cases, I've shared my story in front of hundreds of people. But every time I do, I reference different people, starting with two high school kids, Noel Bjerkus, Mary Weinrich, who started sharing the gospel with me. I mean, it was very evident. I was very lost, and they knew the truth, and they knew the Savior. And so they were willing to risk it and go and start talking with me. But of course, I didn't understand. I just never got it, right? So I go on to college, and, and when I get in college, guess what? Why, God's got his people there. And there at the University of Oregon, there would be People like Brooke and uh, Doug Gardner and Frank Barada. There would be Elion and Becky and these, these people that loved Jesus and were not just in life for what they could get out of it, but they were realizing they were kingdom citizens. They believed that there's only one way to salvation and eternal glory. And they were willing and desirous to tell me the truth about Jesus. You see, that's how God works. You see, what we believe influences how we behave. You see, what you really believe, why, that's, that's all revealed in just how you live your life, right? And so when you realize, hey, 
This is about the greatness of God. This is about people really coming to know him. That's my desire. You'll be willing to share. You see, biblical doctrine brings depth in our life. And you're like, what does that word even doctrine mean? It simply just means teachings. It's the teaching of Scripture. And it's the teaching of Scripture that brings depth to our lives. So look at verse 10. I mean, like, that is spiritual depth. This is some pretty heavy-duty doctrine. And what it's doing is it's taking us deeper into an understanding of who God is, how he functions, and how important this is that we understand this so that we live differently. We live in relationship with Christ for his kingdom purposes. And then just to show how important it is to focus on Jesus, he gives us these precepts of the faith. Maybe verses 11 and 13, they're likely kind of a little bit set apart, and that's because this was likely a common refrain or even perhaps an early hymn of the Christian faith. It is a memorable poem that highlights the precepts of our faith, specifically doctrines concerning Jesus Christ. And they would say this to remind one another of who Jesus is and what he's accomplishing and how important it is to trust him. And so the first stanza you find in verse 11. So he says, it is a trustworthy statement, if, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. This first stanza focuses on our union with Christ. You see, it's Christ who regenerates us, who brings us from death to life. And what that looks like is that we come to a place where we are trusting in that Jesus Christ, death on the cross, that payment for sin, the wages of sin is death, that payment, his sacrifice, is now my sacrifice for sin. He died in my place. Propitiation. He satisfied God's just wrath against sin. When we come to a place where his death is ours, for if we died with him, why, we will also live with him. Why? Because we remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. His resurrection life actually becomes our life because he unites us with his son. In fact, his son literally dwells in our hearts by faith. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We are God's people. But in order to come to a place where you die with him, that means that you got to not only realize your own sinfulness, but you have a recognition of who Jesus really is, the eternal Son of God, and there's a brokenness over your sin. This isn't, and you see this, like, people say this, or maybe it happens, like, at funerals, and people just talk about, well, they were a, a good person that went to this church, you know? They were a faithful member of the church, you know? As if that's all there's to it. You just got to show up at some church somewhere or be somewhat regular or just show up maybe on Christmas, Easter, whatever, and that just makes you fine with God. I want you to know that's not relationship with Christ. You've got to, his death has to be yours. His life has to be yours. There is a union with Christ. And then, then the second stanza highlights the perseverance in Christ. He says, if we endure, verse 12, we will also reign with him. So if we endure the difficulties, the hardships, the challenges, we persevere in his strength, I want you to know that God is going to allow us, like the text says, to reign with him. We are servants of the king, and in his millennial kingdom, this thousand-year reign after Christ returns, which he has guaranteed and promised, 
we will, as hard as this is for us to believe, we actually will reign with him. This goes far beyond eternal rest. You know, we, we, people talk about like, well, you died, they're on to their eternal rest. This actually speaks of privileged intimacy and eternal responsibility. Jesus spoke of this. Remember Luke chapter 19, the parable of the, the minas, or you might refer to it as the parable of the, the being good stewards of the money? Remember, there was a nobleman, and that Jesus told the story, and he says he's going to go away to receive a kingdom, but he's going to come back. And before he left, he took 10 of his servants, and he said, listen, I'm going to give each one of you a mina, which is the equivalent of about 100 days' wage. So you think about how much do you make in 100 days, right? Okay, that's what they received. And he says, I want you to do business with this until I come back. But when Jesus told the story, he said, so the noble one went away, uh, and there were people that sent delegations like, hey, please don't come back. We hate you. We're not for you. We don't want you to return, right? But then guess what? The nobleman did come back. And he gathered the guys that he gave the, all the money to, and he said, all right, what'd you do with it? And remember the one says, hey, you gave me one, and I want you to know I invested it. I made the most of it. Here's now 10 minas. And you remember what the nobleman said? He said, why, you're going to receive responsibility and authority over 10 cities. And he systematically went down that, except the one guy said, oh boy, you know what? Uh, I didn't really think you were really coming back, and so I didn't do anything with it, and it didn't end up so well for the guy who wasted the opportunity. You see, if we will persevere, do you see what the text says? If we endure, we shall also reign with him. You see, our focus is on Christ, the power of his word, and this glorious eternity, this eternal glory that he's speaking with. And then notice the next stanza, the third stanza. It tells us in verse 12 that it's the consequence of decidedly denying Christ. You see it? If we deny him, he also will deny us. Now, this isn't speaking of the kind of the temporary breakdown. You remember like, like Peter had? Remember where Peter, you know, denied knowing Jesus? Remember at Jesus' trial, it was a kind of the mock trial. The uh, religious leader, leaders, the Jewish uh, Sanhedrin are kind of meeting and mocking him, right? And, and Peter, actually his chief guy, his lead guy, spent about, you know, three years with Jesus. Why, well, remember Peter denied him? Three times. And, and it was like a little servant girl. It was like, hey, wait, wait, you were with Jesus, Right? Even how you talk kind of gives you away. Remember Peter? He kept denying it. In fact, he like, whoa, this is getting really bad. I need to start swearing and cursing, right? To really show that I mean business and I really don't know Jesus. Remember that? But did, uh, did Jesus leave him in that state? No. After the resurrection, you remember he restored him? No, the denial that's being talked about here, this is the permanent, continuous denial of belief and a refusal to trust in Jesus Christ. Despite the evidence and despite the numerous opportunities, it's to deny, it is to refuse to acknowledge. You simply will not have him. And by the way, this statement right here, why this is just Paul rephrasing Jesus. Pretty well-known statement of Jesus should be wetter well-known. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. Jesus said this, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, what is that? Public identification. You confess me before men? Jesus said what? I will also confess him before my Father who's in heaven. Wow, 
Is that powerful or what? But on the other hand, Jesus said this, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. I never knew you. Depart from me. You see, you didn't want him in this life. You know, if you're in the camp, they're like, hey, I'm just not going to believe it's all hokey stuff. It's for the weak. If, I want you to know that uh, if you've kind of the person that like, you know, I've got my couple of reasons why I just won't believe. Like, you know, like the Bible. I'm, I'm sure there's some errors in there. It's just a religious writing, some inspired writings from folks. You want to read it, that's all fine, but it's, it's on par with like, we'll put it like, you know, the Quran or, or the Book of Mormon. We'll just, we'll just call it like a nice religious writings, right? Or when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, you're like, are you kidding me? Really? You really think Jesus dying on a cross, are you kidding me? Comes back from the dead three days later? That's impossible. Why, you'd be a fool to believe that, right? And so what happens is you, uh, you kind of just keep embracing this. You have your little pat answers you throw out. And I want you to know that if you continue your life and you take your dying breath and that is your final stand, you wouldn't have him in this life. You will not have him in the next. I have to wonder that if the echo in hell is not this, if we deny him, he also will deny us. And if you're in that place, you know, like, yeah, I've been kind of always the guy who, or gal, always denying Jesus. Can I just ask you one question? What if you're wrong? You ever been wrong before? Probably not too many times that you admit because there's probably a lack of real humility in your life. But have you been wrong? And what if you're wrong on this? The most important issue of life. What if if Jesus really did come to this earth, just like all the evidence shows? What if he really is the perfect sacrifice of sin? What if Jesus really did rise from the grave? What if he really does transform lives? You certainly have evidence of that, right? You see how Christ changes people's lives. And what if there really is a heaven and a hell? And the difference between which destination you go to is all based on what you do with Jesus Think of it. If you will not have him in this life, you will not have him the next. There's only one verse I can give to help you. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And that name? Jesus. But if we deny him, he also will deny us. And then notice this fourth stanza. It highlights the faithfulness of Christ. And boy, is this relief to our souls. Verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. All those many times, even as Christians, when we're faithless, right? We've, we've done the wrong thing, we've sinned, we, we've actively sinned, uh, we've, we've gone incognito, we did the chameleon thing. Instead of just... Uh, a, recognizing or identifying with Jesus, oh no, we kind of pulled back. Like, uh, uh, the most important value of my life is just to kind of fit in, right? And no one else is willing to take a stand, so neither will I. I mean, all those times, guess what? Even when we're faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. He can't contradict his being, who he is. 
You see, God offers and secures eternal life for his people. When does eternity end? It never ends. God gives eternal life. The very first verse of the Bible that you probably really ever encountered, John three sixteen. he doesn't offer you probationary life. He secures and gives you eternal life. And you're like, well, why is God like this? Because the covenantal God always acts in conformity to his nature. Always acts in conformity to his nature. You see, even when we're faithless, and all of us have at different times, right? Maybe even this past week. Guess what? He secured us. He loved us. He loves us. Even when we're faithless, he's faithful. You see this text here, and you know, we, you see, God wants us to know firsthand the wonder of who he is and the beauty of his ways. And what it'll lead to is worshiping him from the heart. Now, you know, none of us choose to just randomly love things, right? We have to know that they're lovely. True? Isn't that how it works? So, for instance, let me give you, like, honey, for instance. You can see honey, uh, but you don't, like, man, I love honey just by looking at it, right? You actually have to taste it. And when you do, like, wow, it's awesome. No wonder it's a biblical food, right? Honey, right? It's like one of the things that John the Baptist, he's eating bugs, he's going to eat honey, right? Because this is going to be really important because it, it is absolutely delightful. I, I mean, I, I love honey. But I love it because I, I know it and I experience it. And I'm looking forward to experiencing some more, right? But that's how it works. Or, for instance, I'm sure you've heard of, like, the Biltmore in Asheville, North Carolina. Okay? For years, I'd, I'd heard of the Biltmore. It is, in case you're like, what is that? It is the largest private home built in America, okay? Uh, Just for you to kind of get perspective on this, think of what you're living in. This house comes in at just shy of 179,000 square feet, okay? It's got 250 rooms. Originally, it sat on 125,000 acres. It was built by George Vanderbilt. He's the one that funded it. He hired uh, the architect, Richard Morris Hunt, uh, to interpret his vision. It was based on a chateau in France, And then he also hired Frederick Law Olmsted to landscape it. And it is absolutely fabulous. And I've seen pictures of it, and I saw a brochure, like, wow, that looks really cool. But there was a time where I got to take my entire family and get a tour of it. Like, whoa! Pictures? Okay, that's one thing. But you've got to actually see it to really take in its grandeur. I mean, it took them over six years, a thousand men working six days a week, to build it. And it has stunning features. And so on Christmas Eve, 1895, it had this great, glorious, grand opening. And, you know, even today, you can, you can take tours of it. And let me, there's all these features. Let me just give you a few. Like, for instance, it has this grand staircase. It is 107 steps that go up four stories, and it is a marvel of physics. It's a cantilever uh, staircase. It looks as if it has no support and that's because it is all of the weight is, in, is put into the wall, which suspends it. But it is an absolute wonder to behold. It's like, whoa, it just kind of like floats up there and it keeps going and going. And in the midst of this massive staircase is a 1,700-pound wrought iron chandelier. It is suspended by one bolt, just one, that kind of weight. And 
what happens? You got to like take it in when you walk in around and you're seeing this. You're like, oh my, this is unbelievable. And what really helps you appreciate it is like if you have a docent, you know, like a tour guide, and they're explaining things to you. Or you can have like a pamphlet, or you can even read books about it and how it was built. And you can even take special tours like the architectural tour. They sometimes call it the rooftop tour. It's behind the scenes, and you see all the marvels of this amazing building. I tell you this because uh, you have to actually experience it. And once it's explained, it fills you with a sense of awe and wonder. So it is with God. You see, God doesn't want us just like, wow, God's great, but I don't know anything about him. No, he wants us to know him deeply. And so there are different ways that happens. Like if you want to develop doctrinal depth, you do so by actually being in the scripture, letting God's word wash over your mind and heart. But another is having sermons and classes that really will teach you the Bible. You don't want to just know about God or just hear some things. You want to see the truth. And that's what a good Bible teacher does. They're like a tour guide, and they're showing you and explaining to you, maybe even a scholar to explain, this is how this all works. And what happens? You're like, oh, my, this is amazing. And then, of course, there are just statements of faith. Like, you could even start with our churches and just like, okay, who is God? How does he work? It's just very concise. But you can move from that to other doctrinal statements to even some significant works of theology called systematic theologies. All of this will do is foster an understanding of who God is, their explanations. It takes you deeper, and it leads to a depth in your life that is reflected with love, joy, worship, stability. Here's a couple terms you're going to encounter, like the word theology, if you're like, what does that even mean? Well, it's based on two Greek words, theos, meaning God, and logos, which means word. So it's, it's literally a word of discussion about God, okay? And systematic theology is just kind of taking the categorical summation of all the truth that we know about God revealed in his word. And what it does is it takes us a, to a deep understanding. And that is what is needed because we have a problem. And here's the problem. Among Christians today, there is a complete lack of depth. We have people that identify as Christians but actually don't know really anything about the character of God. They don't recognize or even identify and understand the reality of human sin, the role of the church, or the exclusivity and divinity of Jesus Christ. They believe things that are actually not even true. And yet they refer to themselves as Christians. And there's one of two reasons why. They're either inoculated because they have some sort of veneer of the truth or they're just really immature. They're infants. They are inch deep. They haven't really explored the depth of knowing God. But when we know God and his word and his character, you know what that happens? It gets reflected in our lives. The stability, the joy of knowing him, a loving him, worshiping him, even willing to suffer for him. So, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I heard a story um, years ago of a man who was taking a long trek, and he came in the north to, during the winter uh, to a river that had been frozen. But he wasn't sure, like, just how, how frozen the river is. And the last thing you want to do is fall through uh, ice when you're walking across a river. So he, he, like, started to approach this, and he just got down on his hands and knees. And he's, like, looking and listening to see if anywhere there's going to be a crack or a fissure, you know, and, like, listening. At times where he felt really unsafe, he would just kind of lay down and kind of keep moving. 
But then as he was kind of making his way over the river, he heard this. And there's a horse galloping, and, and he kind of looks off not too far from the distance there, and here's this guy riding this horse, and he doesn't even stop. But he hits that river, and he just keeps going on that horse, is galloping across. You see, the guy on the horse, he, uh, he knew. Well, that ice is solid through and through. Nothing's going to be able to cause that horse to fall through. And he ran right across. That, that guy had knowledge that led to a completely different way of life. And for the man who was on his hands and knees, all of a sudden he realized, you know what? I can walk in the strength. And friends, that's what God wants us to do. The doctrines of our faith, they develop depth in our lives. So I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer, and then we're going to have a time of communion. So would you just bow your heads with me? And would you, as we have just had the word opened, would you just praise God, the living God? Would you thank him for the glorious salvation, the gospel? That you're dead in your trespasses and sins, but he, he's paid the penalty. He's died in our place, and he's alive. And would you thank him that you're alive? Would you thank God that he has given you the ability, his Holy Spirit, his strength to endure, to move forward, to persevere? And would you thank him in advance that we're going to reign with him? Would you thank him that even when we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He is absolutely consistent. Would you confess any sin that the Spirit of God brings to your mind? Thank him for grace. We're unconditional. Love by him. Would you ask God, would you bring your request before him to take you deeper, to love him in more significant and profound ways? Stability, strength, a willingness to be fully And we do all of this because we remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you want to take your communion cups, if you did not receive one, just put up your hands. One of the ushers will get them to you. By the way, the Bible says you should not partake if you don't truly know Christ. What you should do is trust him now. But it says, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. And he said, do this as often as you think of me in remembrance of me. So would you take this and remember Jesus Christ? In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so before you drink, I want you to remember the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf. Love poured out on the cross for you. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And friends, 
he's coming back. Let's pray. Lord, what an awesome symbol of worshiping you. We ask, God, that you have been exalted in our time of praise and prayer through the opening of your word. God, would you continue to transform us, draw us even deeper into just this love relationship with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Grant. Well, how appropriate is we just did what our verse says, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. We just participated in that remembrance. And you know, Grant mentioned that living in relationship of knowing Jesus, so that we are to live in a relationship of knowing Jesus. I think it's appropriate that the verses that Paul just wrote before this were talking about the hard work and dedication and the commitment that's required to live like the soldier, like the athlete, and like the farmer, right? It's not easy, but you're where you are for a purpose. You're going to your class, to your, to your office, in the community for a purpose. God has you there to live in light of knowing him and to spread him to others. So now's your time. Make your commitment. Lord, I'm going to go and I'm going to live for you. And so you are dismissed to have a blessed week.